everyone. This is Tom Salemi. Welcome back to the MedTech Talk podcast. Thanks for joining us. I'll be honest, our guest today is a, it's a bit of a departure from, from typical MedTech stories, and we will get back to those MedTech stories uh, very soon. But this uh, affords us an opportunity to sort of explore some of those companies that are operating not necessarily in adjacent parts of healthcare technology, but in areas that could be adjacent someday. Our guest today is Malia Shavat. She is the CEO of Savonics, and uh, this is a, a tale that we told on our Breaking Health podcast last week, and I wanted to share it with you because uh, I think it's a great story. I think it's a, I think Malia has a, uh, has a great origin, as does Savonics. Uh, it is one of those stories that's built around personal tragedy, sort of inspiring a person to start a company to solve a problem that they need to have solved. And uh, you'll hear Malia's story in this podcast. But I also think it's going to be interesting to learn a little more about cognitive function and how that plays into overall health. The interview was conducted by Steve Krupa. Steve is the uh, contributing host of our Breaking Health podcast, which is affiliated with our Digital Healthcare Innovation Summit. But I like the story and wanted to share it on the MedTech Talk podcast. We're going to be doing a little bit of this going forward, just sort of in addition to listening to the, the blue chip tales of our, uh, our terrific CEOs in MedTech, I'd like to bring in some, some newer ideas. It was one of the themes that came up at our MedTech steering committee uh, where we talked about the agenda for the upcoming MedTech conference, which is happening on May 31st in Minneapolis. We want to hear more from those players who are influencing MedTech from the outside. So uh, we'll be uh, hitting upon those themes, talking to those guests, in addition to talking to uh, our great leaders at medtech companies nationwide and worldwide, if we can. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Malia Shavat of Savonics. And again, Steve Krupa of HealthEdge is doing the interview. He did a great job, and I'm sure you will enjoy it. I'm here with Malia Shavat from Savonics. Welcome to the podcast, Malia. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you here. I mean, this is, I think this is one of those stories where there are some, um, some personal events and some interests that sort of led to the founding of the company. But I really want to get, I want to sort of start with the company. Um, the company is, talks, you know, is described as uh, digital cognition. Um, tell mm-hmm. me what problem the company is solving and, 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 and how you're going about solving that problem sort of as a starting point. Well, and you know that, Steve, that is actually intertwined with the personal story because sure. that was how I first really understood the nature of the problem. The irony being that I was at the time, you know, training um, for my PhD in clinical psychology with a focus on neuropsychology. And um, what we do is we provide a digital assessment of cognition. So this is things like executive function, working memory, attention, cognitive flexibility. Um, These are domains that are indicated across a variety of diseases from the obvious things like depression and Alzheimer's and Parkinson's to less obvious things. Uh, Many people don't know that um, cognitive impairment is very common secondary to things like cancer and diabetes. So this is a, a, a domain of human function that has broad implications for quality of life, longevity, and, and overall health. And in terms of what got my attention around what, what, what needed to happen with a, a digital solution, a lot of it 
really started when, when my own husband needed the kind of testing that we now provide. Yeah, I mean, I want to hear the story about about your about your husband, but but give me a sense for how do you is 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 cognition ranked in the same way as sort of um, attention or maybe intelligence? How, what what is what is what is what does the cognition scale look like when you? When you evaluate, how does it break down? Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, no, that's great. I mean, and that, I get that question a lot. So people ask me all the time, "Is this an IQ test?" And it's not. So IQ is really a cultural construct, right. and you can think of an intelligence test as what the brain knows, what it's learned. Um, and these are it's heavily weighted by things like education and culture, right? Um, I think of one of the classic uh, questions in the information section of the WACE, the most widely used IQ test, and it's who was president of the United States during the Civil War. Well, if I grew up in the U.S. and went to grade school here, I'm going to know that. But if I grew up in China, I'm probably not going to. And so that's a really culturally loaded uh, construct. And cognition is distinctly different. It's really what the brain is capable of. It's foundational capability for things like switching between tasks quickly or remembering digits in in order or in reverse order or remembering what you just saw two screens ago on a computer screen and does it match what you're seeing now. Things like visual spatial orientation and the ability to arrange objects in space in a way that makes a picture or creates um, a, a, a known object that you may be just viewed and now you're, you're replicating it again. So these aren't, lo- these aren't determined by education or race. Um, in fact, th- those things shouldn't influence them at all. Age influences cognition. The brain uh, develops and cognition uh, improves over, the, over childhood and adolescence, um, especially things like emotion regulation and impulse control. Uh, anybody who's ever parented a teenager knows that that doesn't come online till the 20s. <laughs> um, and, you know, we see that. And then, you know, it, it, then, you, then you have a, a robust adulthood of, 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 of cognitive function. And then we start to experience age-related changes um, as we get older. But norms... Um, for cognition are by age. And so uh, to give you a good example, if you have average working memory when you're 40, you should still have average working memory when you're 80. It's just that the, the, the score that gets you that percentile, the performance that gets you that percentile is adjusted for normal age-related changes. Mm-hmm. So if we see that score shift, say, by a major percentile, we know that, that, that that's real decline. It's not age-related change. So, you know, I... I um... Let, let's so help me understand the story. So so I know that um, I know from your background that psychology and neuroscience was something that you were studying at a fairly advanced level, right? This was 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 yes, going to be yes. your career path to become a, a researcher and I, I, I'm assuming a professor in in those areas. And yes. you stopped, yes. and you became an entrepreneur. First of all, did yes. you ask anybody? whether that was a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> um, my, own mother, my own mother had owned several businesses, okay. uh, started a couple businesses in her lifetime, and so she's, you know, she ran a restaurant for years, so she was a pretty good touchstone around, okay, are you crazy? Yeah, um, right. And, yeah, and I had been an early employee at uh, Travelocity back in the 90s and, and, and had, a, uh, had gotten a feel a little bit for how the sausage is made, so to speak, in that environment. And so I wasn't, having lived in San Francisco for 20 years, I wasn't unfamiliar with 
that it was not going to be easy. Um, so what happened was um, during the course of my graduate studies, uh, preparing to be um, a neuropsychologist and also doing work in neuroimaging to augment that 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 training, my husband was uh, was um, hit by a car when he was stopped at a stop sign in oh. San Francisco on his bike. Oh, no. And he had some pretty severe injuries, and he went through a series of neurosurgery procedures and other things. He um, contracted MRSA that went undiagnosed because his sediment, he was not the average patient. His sedimentation rate was very low, meaning he was healthier than average when he got the infection. And so what looked like just a slightly elevation, slight elevation in him was actually uh, indication of a massive infection. It got missed. A lot of things just didn't we just went horribly wrong um, around access to care, access to data, um, being treated to patient averages, right, versus personalized medicine. And one place where that happened was cognition. So um, I noticed changes in my husband after the accident, and I wanted to get cognitive testing, and, and they said fine and great, but the problem was he couldn't walk at that time. He was at home completely bedbound. And Getting at-home testing is virtually impossible, so I, I knew that there were digital tools. We were using some precursors to some of the things I've developed at Savonics at the time, um, some of the early desktop digital tools at uh, Stanford School of Medicine, and I went and looked at everything that existed and looked at what I could maybe give him at home, and I didn't care for any of them. Um, everything was now this point-and-click mouse space. There was no drawing. There was no arranging of objects in space. And I didn't, as, a, as someone who had been classically trained to administer these tests in pen and paper, they didn't measure up to what I, what I, what I knew he needed to get to get a good uh, global cognitive assessment of brain function. And so to give you a sense of how vast the problem is, um, there are 43.4 million Americans right now that have been diagnosed with some kind of cognitive problem. There are, at last count, uh, by the American Board of Professional Psychology, only 907 board-certified neuropsychologists that are trained specifically to do cognitive testing in the U.S. and Canada. Only about wow. 4,100 globally. Like right. That. So now, yeah, right? So it's really a horrible service gap. And, you know, I didn't understand that because I was, and I'm going to say it, inside an ivory tower. Sure. At Stanford, I think out of the 907, 300 are there. You know, it's a really, it's like, they're all at Harvard, Stanford, Princeton, Yale. You know, right. it's a resource-rich environment. And you have a, a, a false sense of healthcare access in that, in that environment. And so all of a sudden overnight, I was the wife of this patient and trying to get access to the very thing I had been trained to do and finding it impossible. And so this was something where it was the digital tools that existed didn't make me happy from a scientific and design standpoint. And then the way that the testing was done, I found, you know, didn't really work for the patient. And, and I was like, this is, this is backwards. It's too provider centric. It's too, you know, resource centric. It's not patient centric. And I wanted to create something that was patient centric that could be delivered anytime, anywhere by a virtual clinician. So that 907 number just doesn't matter anymore. Right. Done. And could be administered at home on a mobile device because 80 some percent of the computing in the world is done on mobile devices. They're mm -hmm. ubiquitous. And so I wanted something that was um, accurate and scientifically valid, gold standard test that was affordable, you know, uh, and a doctor could get it to a patient for the cost of a copay or less and, you know, was actionable and accessible 
um, and was focused on what the patient needed and how they needed to be tested rather than what was good for the neuropsychologist. Hey, everyone, Tom here. I hope you're enjoying this conversation with Malia Shavat. I did want to tell you that the MedTech Conference will be held on May 31st in Minneapolis. So circle that day on your calendar. Save that date. We'll see you in Minneapolis on May 31st at the Lowe's Minneapolis Hotel. Now back to this conversation. So I have a bunch of questions on that, but I, I do want you to finish the story. I'm sure the listeners want to know how is your husband today? What ultimately happened with his treatment? Yeah, it's it's really incredible. He's my inspiration and my rock. He's an amazing human being, and he was a triathlete um, at the time that he was in the accident. Um, and he was. We were told at one point by doctors at Stanford that we should put him in a wheelchair and put him on benzodiazepines. And that was when I just went, forget it. And I put together a treatment team and headed it myself. I found an osteopathic um, MD that would do uh, work around movement, a, a world-class physical therapist, um, an acupuncturist to help uh, with massage and acupuncture. She does both um, to help with the pain and also um, an amazing uh, Buddhist monk that, that lectures at Stanford that agreed to work with my husband to help him manage his pain without medication through uh, mindfulness approaches. And so this was a treatment team, and I put them together on an infectious disease do doctor from UCSF that was amazing and because of the MRSA. Put them together, and we had phone calls, and he uh, decided he was going to learn to walk again. And um, he had been told he couldn't. And what? he set a goal to climb Mount Whitney, which is a 14,000-foot peak. And it was so amazing. He's one of six children. And so his brothers and um, a really good friend of his were like, okay, if you're going to learn to walk again, we're going to now start getting in shape and training because if you climb this mountain, we're going to do it with you. And um, about 18 months later, my husband was standing on the summit of Mount Whitney with his brother, brother-in-law, and one of his best friends in the world. And there's just, just – he was in pain. It was a really – difficult thing for him, but he did it. And today he's back on his bike. He's swimming. He's active. He hiked the John Muir Trail with uh, brothers and brother-in-law and nephew uh, just this summer. And he's just doing great. That's great news. That's great news. Now, when you think back on that, but well, by the way, that's, uh, that, that is an alternative medicine um, uh, care team that you put together. You were, you're aware of that. Right? It was an alternative medicine. And yes, you are, MDs, and you are, MDs were in there. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of that stuff's not insured. Um, well, but let me, let me no. What but, would what would a cognitive test have been? How would how would have that have benefited uh, in his case or in, in in other analogous cases? How does the cognitive test help drive the treatment? That's such a fantastic question, and and so in his case, you know, and I'll I'll get into this. So you. For instance, let's say that you have um, you experience a traumatic brain injury, and I administer a test after the fact, and it shows that um, your cognitive function is in the average range for you know all these domains that I just tested. So I might say, okay, there's no problem, but the problem is I don't know your baseline. What if actually out of those 14 domains I just measured, six of them were in the higher high average range, and you've actually lost hundreds of percentile points in cognitive function? Um, again, we go back to this idea of patient averages or norms versus personalized medicine. And I, you know, most people walking around know their blood pressure number and their cholesterol number, but they don't know their cognitive numbers. 
and their cognitive numbers are much more relevant to their life and their ability to do everything they need to do every day, like remember what they need to get at the grocery store, drive their car, conduct their lives, you know, emotionally regulate to parent those difficult teenagers, do all that stuff. Your cholesterol, your blood pressure, they're important, and you have to watch those things. But cognition, to me, is the fifth vital sign that we don't talk about. We don't talk about it, and we don't, we don't monitor it. We don't measure it. And you need to be able to pay attention, think, plan, and remember if you're going to participate in your own treatment, whether that treatment is rigorous physical therapy, like my husband underwent to learn to walk again, or managing your diabetes. Because people think, oh, you just, you know, change your diet and do this with, your, with diabetes. It's very difficult to manage diabetes. It is, I, I try to explain it to people this way. Imagine that you had to remember every day to breathe. You actually had to breathe. Like you had to tell yourself to breathe. And if you, if you didn't do it um, explicitly, right, it, it wouldn't happen and you would, you would get very sick. It's really what's going on with diabetes. You, have your, you are now taking over um, manually a process that the brain and the pancreas have evolved to do automatically over millions of years. And now all of a sudden you're supposed to do this, um, you know, in this very manual and, and explicit way. It's a very difficult thing to do, and it turns out that cognition is hugely wrapped up in your ability to do that successfully on your own. If, if your husband had taken a, your, a, a cognition test, I, I don't know, did you administer one to him? Because given your background, did you, did you actually, uh, were you actually yeah. able to do a diagnosis? And what, you did not have a baseline, I'm assuming, unless you made him take one before you married him, did you? Cause it's, 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 I, I did, because he had been my guinea pig. <laughs> so you had no, data. No, you, you, had, was... you had good data, so you were able to take baseline and deviation mm-hmm. from baseline. What did you find? Um, this is very interesting to me. So, so what did you find when you compared the two results? Yeah, the, I found that he had had some, some changes related. We, we didn't know at the time, is it related to all the medication they have him on, or is it related to the accident? But we, we certainly could see that there had been some changes. And, and I was able to show that data to the doctor who kept telling me he seems fine to me. That's what I kept being told. He seems fine to me. He seems fine to me. And I'm like, this is not, no, this is not, no. This is not normal for, for him. And, but I had data to prove it because I, he had been, I cut you off, but it's just because it's so funny. The reason I had the baseline data on him was when I was in graduate school and learning to do the testing, you have to have people to practice on. And he had been one of the yeah. people that was like, you know, agreed, yes, yeah. I'll let you torture me for four hours and sit through this pen and paper testing. Yeah, I mean, there, there, there's, all, <laughs> there's all sorts of ways to do it. So if I look at this, I look, I'm on your website I'm, I, and I see a, sort of a list. So I'm just going to read this list off so the listeners can sort of understand the categories of sort of cognition that you're thinking about. So it says instant verbal memory, delayed verbal memory, attention, focus, impulse control, spatial memory, emotional identification, information processing, working memory executive functions and flexible thinking, right? Mm -hmm. These are all, Mm -hmm. I mean, executive function is one thing that I see stress really affect, but what did you notice that, and what did your test tell you in this instance that became a clue to medical treatment or um, lifestyle treatments or lifestyle changes that, that you thought needed to take place to treat for for the treatment? Does, Does my question make sense to you? 
Do you follow where I'm coming from? It does. It's, you know, it was more, okay, if we're going to start physical therapy and we know that, um, you know, the patient is struggling, let's say, with attention and cognitive flexibility. So the cognitive flexibility, you hear all the time about multitasking, right? Oh, somebody's a good multitasker. They're not. Until they're not. There is no such thing. <laughs> yeah, we right. actually, no, they're really not. But what they are good at is a thing we call cognitive flexibility. So think of that as toggling back and forth really quickly between two things, sure. such that it looks like you're doing them simultaneously, right? Yep. Multi-threading, so they call about it. Yeah, right? Multi-threading. Exactly. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks. You got it. And so these are the kinds of things that if these things are impaired in in the patient and you're asking them to engage in a rigorous, say, physical therapy regime where they have to remember to do certain exercises every day in a certain way. Now, I can write down the exercises for them, but what if they don't remember, right? Mm -hmm. They, They look at it and they go, what's the little leg thing? How did she do that with me at the office the other day? How do I do that? I, there's some great new things of using video on the phone to like video what you do in PT, you know, for right. people who are struggling so that they can see that video of the movement at home. I've motion capture, I think it's the name of the health tech company I saw. It was, oh my God. I was like, wow, I wish I'd had that. Um, yeah. Because it would have been great instead of just doing it on my smartphone myself, like taking photos during, you know, video during the, the physical therapy session. And it wasn't even a smartphone. Um, well, it was by the time we got into the PT because it was about 2010. But you know, originally it was like just really horrible uh, little home video stuff. And um, so it's the ability to understand where the deficits are, and then you know, provide support through the treatment regime that accounts for that. And and I think you know, I go back to diabetes is a great example. Sixty uh, percent of people fail at self-managing their diabetes. And, right. and that's a huge number. Please. Yeah, And it's a $248 billion a year cost in the U.S. I, it never occurred to me. I never realized how difficult people are. You know, most of the cases you see advertised or discussed publicly about diabetes are people that have been successful managing their diabetes. Yes. But in fact, yes. pretty much most, especially type 1 and late stage type 2 diabetics on insulin, uh, apparently yes. they, they have a very difficult time. They have a very, very difficult time. It's a very high fail rate. Yeah. And, and again, I go back to imagine you had to manually breathe or pump your heart. Sure. Sure. It, it's that hard. I mean, they're regulating their pancreas manually. And, you know, it's, and, and it, it's really hard. And if I'm going to ask someone to do that, um, and, 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 I can, and how do I figure out, is this, a, is this a person who can self-manage, right? Do they have the capability? So they can, can, they can pay attention to what I'm telling them. They can uh, encode it, remember it, right? They have good working memory. So they can hold a lot of complex information, what we call online, mm-hmm. and manipulate it in real time. And you see people with great working memory, and I hate them. It's really unfair. But they really can do that. You know, think of like the courtroom lawyer who seems to remember everything on their feet, and you're like, wow. So the same thing with medical treatment. And so think about and that's why I go back to diabetes. So the thing is, is that diabetes itself, you, have, you often have what we call cognitive impairment secondary to diabetes, meaning that the disease itself causes cognitive 
cognitive problems. And many of these patients get labeled what we call non-compliant, right? They're a non-compliant patient. They're difficult. I mean, I used to hear this language all the time at the hospital. And I really think in the case of diabetes that we're missing the boat with a lot of people. And don't get me wrong. There are people who just are obstinate and don't want to do what they're told and want to eat sugar. And, you know, there's, there's definitely people that just aren't on board with the fact that they've got a serious disease and have to deal with it. But I don't think that's the vast majority of people who are failing. I think the vast majority of people who are failing um, have may have even it may their cognition may still be in the normal range, but it might be in the lower end of the normal range, which often encompass, encompasses with these cognitive domains the 20th to the 80th percentile of function. So that's a wide range. And there's a big difference between somebody at the 78th and somebody at the say 28th mm-hmm. in terms of their ability to manage something as complex as a diabetes treatment regime. And so if we can understand where the patient is at cognitively ahead of time, right, we can then just like, you know, I did, um, you know, I've done for other patients, take videos, we can set reminders, we can uh, provide nursing support, uh, phone calls, whatever, what, anything that can be done to help the person with those difficult tasks of attending, remembering, and planning mm-hmm. to what they have to be able to do. Um, to, to manage that disease successfully. So it's, it, I'll make a statement and you, you disagree with me or agree with me because I really don't know what I'm talking about. So it's just going to be sort of a guess. <laughs> but it, it, even if you took the test without a baseline, okay, and it may, be, it may not be expressing the essence of who you could be or who you are, but it would certainly be presenting, could present uh, notable defects that would impact the way you were being treated as a patient. For example, I'm looking at the list. If you have below average impulse control as a diabetic, right, then one would Mm -hmm. assume that would mean that you would have a tendency not to be compliant, right? Because you would say, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. That's non-compliant because my impulse is to go in that direction. Even if you didn't have a baseline, it wouldn't matter you'd be measuring a personality tendency. Is that off what I just said or, or do you have to have the baseline first? No, you don't have to have the baseline first. Not for things like that. Okay. Um, and I don't, I mean, we're not personality testing. You know, we, we say impulse control, the, how we, you know, the scientific word for it is what we call response inhibition, which is, can you keep yourself from doing something? Yeah. You know, which is basically the same thing. And it is true. And, you, you, at least you will know where your patient is at right now. Right. And that has massive value, whether you're talking about a post-operative patient, um, um, whether you're talking about a diabetic patient, whether you're talking about a, 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 a patient who's experiencing uh, cognitive problems and you're trying to look at a differential diagnosis around, say, vascular dementia or Alzheimer's disease, or is this cognitive impairment secondary to a general medical condition such as thyroid disorder? But this data is still highly valuable because it tells you that there is or is not a cognitive impairment, and again, related to norms, right? So an expected score for a 40-year-old is, you know, 
this, how much do you differ from that? Sure. And do you differ positively? Are you are you performing better than we expected, or are you differing negatively? Are you performing worse than would be expected given your age? And if so, that's information that I, as your provider, can incorporate into your treatment plan. Um, whether that treatment plan is, is rehabilitative therapy um, for a stroke, whether it is diabetic treatment, whether it is post-operative care, um, you know, can I discharge this person to home? Can they care for their sutures? Can they, can they do these things or do they need to go, you know, to not a hospital, but another facility where they have supportive care and until cognition um, stabilizes, which it often will in a lot of these conditions once the disease is, is under management. So yeah, that that I, I, so that's that's one of the things I wanted to ask. So if if in fact I was I I took the test and it said your impulse control for fifty three year old man is oddly low, right? To pay, uh-huh. to to average, just to say to average. Um, what do we do about it? What is what would be the the way is the goal to improve my impulse control or is the goal to adjust something in the way I'm being treated to compensate for my low amount of impulse control? And if you, if that's not a good example, pick spatial memory or some other piece, but one of the, like if you notice what I'm going to call it a deficiency. Okay. In one of the variables that, that, that could be problematic from a medical point of view, is there a treatment to improve it or do you adjust the treatment to sort of uh, mitigate the reality of it. Does my question make sense? It does. And, and I think the answer is it's a little bit of both. So we're, we've ju- we're, we're just setting you up for your next week in diabetes because I'm going to go back to this as a great example. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, I've mentioned a couple times that, that cognitive impairment can be secondary to diabetes, right, that the disease itself has been shown in clinical trials and studies to, you know, be, have a high correlation to uh, poor cognition, and as as diabetes as the disease is stabilized, right, and blood sugar levels are 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 more stable, and the disease is managed well, what we see is that um, we see improvements in cognition when that happens, and so it's a little bit of both because let's say that my working memory um, shows up as in the low average range, so impaired, right, and I'm going in, and now I'm going to go into diabetes treatment, but because my working memory is impaired, my doctor's going to say, you know what, um, we're going to we're going to get your family involved. Your spouse is going to put a reminder in her calendar. There's going to be a reminder in your calendar, and the nurse is going to call you three times a week and ask for your latest, you know, blood glucose reading. And we're going there, there's going to be some supportive care around getting this person um, to to stabilize their disease, and that is all because we know this. We're not putting you into self management because your working memory is impaired, so we're going to have some supportive care here. And then what you would see is that that supportive care, if the disease is better managed, um, if the cognitive impairment is secondary to the diabetes, then it it will improve. Um, there There are cases where it's just comorbid with diabetes, and it's not secondary to it, um, meaning that you know, that person may have had a deficit for another reason, maybe a history of head injury or other things going into their, their diagnosis where this doesn't improve. So it's really, it's, it's a complex set of interactions. Um, but I think that's a really good example of how it's kind of a little bit of both. Okay. And, and so, so now let's just take me through it, your business model. When, 
so it, there's 400, 907 current neuropsychologists that are able to effectively administer a cognition test today. It's more than likely the fact that they're not in demand in the practice of medicine broadly, right? It's not being done. I'm imagining that's the case. Is that true? It's not being done. It's no, not being it's done. not being done. And, and it, it's not being done. And it's not that many doctors don't want it. I've been approached by three neurosurgeons just in the past week who said, I want this done on every patient before I open up their brain, which makes sense, right? Well, yes, that I mean, makes a lot of sense. I want to get a cognitive. Yeah. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> and what they say is... Well, you don't have to sell I me on that one. I'm, I'm all in on that one. Yeah, no, I don't think anybody... Like, you're going to... I want a cognitive baseline before you cut my brain open and start, you know, taking a tumor out. So... So what was interesting was what both, two of these doctors, both almost, almost identical words, said to me, I have wanted to get cognitive testing on all my surgical patients for years. Here's the problem. There's not enough neuropsychologists to refer to. And if you need brain surgery, it's usually not elective. I mean, I love that phrase. It's usually not elective. Really? Right. <laughs> no, I uh, at least not today. Right? Back of it. right, not today. But Steve, I mean, his point was, if you need brain surgery, it tends to be something you need now. Right. Not like, oh, well, we'll wait. So in, in this one case, um, he approached me um, and said, I'd really like to get set up with a license with you guys today. And I was like, what's going on? And he said, I have this patient um, and this is it. I referred her to a neuropsychologist. She wants cognitive testing before the surgery. I want it. It's a 14 month wait list. She doesn't have 14 months. We need we're operating on her next week. Can you give her a cognitive test today? I was like, well, Probably not today, but tomorrow it's going to take us a day to get your license set up. But yeah, we can do that. All right. And he was like, great. Where, give me a contract. Where do I sign? And so we're a software license, right? It's a, a software as a service, a software license. Um, and we, we price it either per test or we do unlimited uh, models for a lot of practices where we look at their um, patient census. We look at uh, what Medicare, Medicaid, private insurance, and we look at how often they want to use the test. And then, you know, our goal is to have as many people tested as possible, to get cognitive baselines on as many people as possible. And so I like to do a lot of those unlimited testing licenses because then every time they're ordering a test, they're not thinking about what it's costing their practice, right? They're just using it mm-hmm. more broadly. And so that tends to be um, that tends to be how we work with the providers that we work with. Very good. So not only have you started a company where you've basically digitized a cognitive test, um, but now you're, you've, you're out talking to providers and um, making a case for using it, right? Which, so you're not like replacing something that was prevalent. You are now arguing that I've got a low-cost, easy-to-administer digital test that will add value to your practice and your ability to treat your patients. How is that being received as you go out and talk to providers? Really well. Um, Across different specialties, across pain and physical rehabilitation, in neurosurgery, in diabetes management, um, in the the diagnosis and monitoring of behavioral health problems like um, depression and post-traumatic stress disorder, um, monitoring treatment, especially in those conditions where 
um, in PTSD and depression, you do see cognition impairments secondary to the mood disorder, say, with depression. And what's really interesting about depression is that when you go on to medication for depression, often the cognitive symptoms will start to remit before the patient notices that their mood symptoms are remitting. But the mood symptoms are... People talk about feeling foggy with depression, but, you know, the biggest thing they feel is the the, the, the hopelessness and, and the mood, you know, related um, feelings of, of being down all the time and the loss of energy. And so it's, you know, people drop out of treatment often uh, with depression because they're not seeing the mood symptoms improve. All they're feeling is the side effects of the drugs. They're not seeing the benefits yet. And so one of the things we're looking at is, you know, can we, but cognition will start to improve usually a little earlier than that stuff. And so can we show people, look, it's working, right? You're, yeah. Look at this. You're, this is getting better. Give it time. Please give it time. Stay with it. And just to help people stay motivated to be in treatment, because I think, you know, especially in, in, in and I was in the mental health field, obviously I'm a clinical psychologist. Um, I think there's so much shame and stigma around these disorders. And we act like, you know, oh, have you ever thought about trying not to have depression? I want to just go, well, have you ever thought about trying not to have cancer? I mean, yeah, go ahead. I don't understand it's a, it's a, it's a chemical disease. And I, I don't think that's well. Un- well, it's becoming much more well understood in, mo- in, in modern times. It is. Yeah, but there's still this idea that it's in your head, you know, and, sure. I, and I love that phrase. Well, it's just in his head. Yeah, it actually is because it's in his brain. Right. Yeah, but it's in the brain. Yeah, and it's, it's, a, it's a physical reality, and, and these diseases are physical diseases. Um, it's just that the manifestation of it is this change in personality, mood, cognition, rather than, say, the growth of a tumor, um, which can ch- cause all those kinds of changes too. But we tend to not blame the person who has a tumor, whereas we do tend to blame the person who has depression or anxiety or often even a disease like PTSD where there's an etiolog- etiological marker around a traumatic event that everybody understands um, caused this, but there's still sort of a you-need-to-get-over-it attitude about the disease, um, which is really unfortunate um, for the people who suffer with it and, and really creates... Um, a lot of shame and pressure and stigma around even getting treatment. Well, well, listen, we, we are we're about out of time. I really <laughs> I could keep going yeah. on talking to you about this, right? It was fun. You didn't even realize how long we were talking. Um, so a couple things. Um, give people a sense for how they can find out more about your company, about the test. I'm looking at a very good website that provides a lot of information. Are you... Uh, on Twitter? Are there white papers that people can find to sort of understand the science behind the testing and the baseline and so on and so forth? You have Facebook. Where, 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 are, where is there information that people can find out about you and your company? Uh, I am on Twitter, uh, both mm. myself and Savonix. Um, nice. I'm at Malia Shervat, my name. And then Savonix Inc. is our, our, our handle for the company. And we do, uh, we're, we post re- relatively regularly. Um, I'm also doing a lot, of, uh, a lot of content generation on LinkedIn around the science around cognition, its relationship to things like sleep and diet and exercise, how you can um, improve and maintain your cognitive health through lifestyle factors and activities. Um, I think these are the kinds of things you know, everybody wants to know is how, what do I do? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, uh, we are a B2B company, so we sell to healthcare systems providers. Um, we're being used in, in a couple of clinical trials right now to measure cognition in treatment trials um, in dementia. And, you know, people can get a hold of me through LinkedIn. They can certainly um, 
send an email or uh, an inquiry through our website. There's a page for that. Um, or they can send an email to info, I-N-F-O, at Savonics.com, and a member of our clinical or uh, customer success team would get back to them right away. Malia, thank you very much. I uh, really enjoyed talking to you. I'm glad you um, had time to, to uh, participate in this podcast. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having me, Steve. It was really a lot of fun to talk to you. That's a wrap, folks. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Malia Shavat of Savonics. I know it's a little bit of out of our medtech world, but uh, I thought Savonics' story was great to hear, and I think its, it's cognitive number measure is uh, an interesting one to track. So Steve Cooper, our host of the Break Health Podcast, did a great job leading this conversation, and I hope you found it enjoyable. We'll get back to, to more traditional medtech themes going forward, but again, we'd like to just shed some light from time to time on other things in healthcare that may ultimately influence medtech innovation and also just might be a good story for folks to hear. So we're all about stories here at the MedTech Podcast. Don't forget, May 31st, we'll be holding our, uh, our conference at the Lowe's Minneapolis Hotel. So circle off that date. And of course, tune in next week for another great tale of innovation on the MedTech Talk Podcast. Bye, everyone.